Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Judas Priest rocks MGM National Harbor with heavy metal on Thursday night. I spoke to founding bass player Ian Hill about the band's rise to success on songs like Breaking the Law, Living After Midnight, and You've Got Another Thing Coming. Ian Hill, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Oh, thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure. So you're calling it the the 50 heavy metal years tour. <laughs> um, was the actual anniversary, was it delayed by the pandemic, but now we're actually able to celebrate 50? Is that what it is? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was. It was delayed for two years. Um, it, it's now well, 52, coming on to 53 years. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we, we, we're determined to get through it, uh, pandem- pandemic or not, you know. So uh, yeah, we we we. we, we back to do it now i know we're a couple of years late but uh better late than never right right exactly yeah yes because the band was formed in 69 so yeah yeah 2019 would have been 50 years but you know what the whole world uh went went you know down the tubes and we're finally coming back so we you can still celebrate the 50 years it's it's fine uh what what all can we is it going to be i assume all the hits they are all the all the big almost like a greatest hits kind of a show or is there uh is there anything new or a little both uh, a bit of both. Uh, we, we like to put a cross section in uh, when we can. Um, obviously, the, there's fans' favourites there that you can't drop, really, uh, that we all love, uh, you know, love to play and love to listen to. Um, but we like to throw a curveball in here and there, you know. So there'll be something, there's something off the first album, Rock and Roller. Um, and uh, One Shot of Glory we're opening, opening with from Painkiller. And uh, that's something we've never played before. Um, so yeah, and, 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 a, and a mixture of other stuff holding you, you know. The trouble is with 50 years of music, you, you've only got a certain amount of time to try and cram as much in as you can. So um, there'll probably be some fans' favourites missing there, but um, I'm sure they'll enjoy what's, uh, what's been put in their place. Right, exactly. Well, we're talking about, you know, the, the band's 50 years, but I want to hear um, of all about your, what do we call it, 70 plus years. <laughs> uh, t- take me back to the beginning. I knew you were born in England. And how did you get into music to begin with? Was there, you know, were, you, were your parents playing it around the house? Or you know, I want to hear the, those early days. Yeah, I was born in 52, actually. My dad played double bass um, in um, jazz bands and jazz combos and things like that. And I got the gene from him, although I wasn't particularly interested in, in playing, really. I was too busy being a kid. Um, and my dad, unfortunately, died. He was only 46, you know, and I was 15. And he just started to teach me the rudiments of the double bass. Mm. Um, and, of course, after that, I yeah, sort of knocked the wind out of my sails for a while. Um, and then I started to listen to, to, to the contemporary music of the time, you know, Cream, John Mayall, Hendrix, and all these people. Um, none of which featured a double bass. <laughs> so I got um, 
I, I got myself a bass guitar, which I found was ultimately easier to play and ultimately more portable, uh, and, and went on with that. And, and I taught myself from then, you know, I just listened to my favourite players and, and picked out the bass lines of the songs uh, and learned that way. You know, you, there's a certain section of notes here, oh, that must be a key, and it just went like that. Um, we all pretty much did it the same way. Uh, I had no formal training apart from that, you know, just a few months really with my dad. Well, sorry to hear you lost him at such a young age, 15. I, I can't, I can't imagine. I make that make you grow up quick. Um, did So you said he started take, teaching you just the basic fundamentals of that on the double bass. So um, when, once you honed the craft and, and decided to take it seriously, were, were you always thinking of him every time you, and do you still every time you pick up that instrument? Yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd love what became of Judas Priest. He would absolutely love it. You know, I don't think he'd like it. <laughs> uh, but but he'd, he'd love the success. Uh, I come from a pretty musical family. Um, my dad's sister, her, her, her lad, she had four boys, all of which are musicians, um, guitarists, drummers, clarinetists. One, one guy played the clarinet. And um, unfortunately for them, fortunate for me, I, I'm, I'm the only person that ever made... Uh, made a go of it, you know, and um, I think I was probably the only one that, that took it seriously, more seriously, you know, uh, and looked upon it as a career. So, so you said you said he would be thrilled and proud of your success as a musician, but even, maybe not a fan of the heavy metals, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Absolutely right, yeah. He, he was a guy, he'd rather listen to T-Bone Walker, you know, and Joe Pass and people like that, and of course the big bands, the, the, the Nelson Riddles and things like that, but, uh, I, I think he'd, he'd handle the blues because there's a there's a lot of jazz in blues as well. You know, he'd, he'd handle that, that part of it. But the heavy metal sort, no, I think he, he'd, have, he'd have drew the line somewhere. <laughs> well, there's plenty of us out there in the world that love that you went in the heavy metal direction. So remind us, remind us the forming of the band itself. Was it, it was with was it true that it was your classmate, uh, K.K. Downing? That's right. Yeah, we, we were only 16, 17. Um, there's Ken and myself and, and another another friend from the Hazen State where, where we lived, John Ellis, who was a drummer. And um, we, we were just learning our trade, as I said, you know, just picking notes out and, and, and keep, keeping the beat together and what have you. And there's, there's a place uh, in, in the local area, uh, a, a rehearsal uh, facility. And... Um, Al Atkins, uh, who was the vocalist with the original Judas Priest, there was one before us, they only lasted a few months. Um, but he'd already got a bit of a name in the area, you know. He'd been at it a bit longer than, than, than the rest of us. He walked past our rehearsal room and liked what he heard. And, uh, you know, sort of came in and, and asked if we needed a vocalist, which we did. <laughs> was done, you know, we were all getting on musically, but, but from a vocal point of view, not, none of us could really carry a tune. And um, that must have been in probably fall of 1970, something like that. Um, and then we were ready to go in, in early 71. I mean, when he joined, obviously, we, we, we did a, a, you know, change the, the, the set list. Not that we had one. Uh, got a set list together, I should say. And we, we were ready to go by 71. Gotcha. So you're saying that the band was so, so, semi-existed before you joined, like, because uh, I, because I've always, I've always loved the name Judas Priest. It's such a great, you know, biblical irony. Yeah. Irony. <laughs> um, but uh, so, but you're saying I was going to ask how you came up with the name, but you're saying it already existed. Yeah, the, the original bass player with the original Judas. But we were all friends, you know, all these people. Um, Brian Stapenhill, 
who was the bass player with, uh, with, the, with the first Judas Priest, um, he thought of it, and I, I think he got it off, um, off Bob Dylan. There's a Bob Dylan song, Judas Priest, and some, somebody else. Okay. And I'm not a Dylan fan, so I don't really know. Um, <laughs> but that's where the, where, the, where the name came from. And when Al joined the band, um, he, he said, well, you know, shall we call it Judas Priest? And, you know, already a bit of a name in the area. And, and we agreed on it, you know. So that's where the, the you know, the, the, the name came from, from Bruno. Bruno Sagan. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Thanks for shedding a little light on that. I didn't even yeah. know that. Um, all right, cool. Well then, so when does Rob Halford join as the, you know, he's been the longtime lead singer. When does he actually take, take charge of the band? Yeah, we, we, we were doing all right. You know, we, we, we sort of left our jobs and we were doing it sort of, well, to say professionally, he's putting a bit of a grand title to it, but at least we were, we were earning a very, very modest living, you know, playing at, um, just, just, just gigging here and there, and and Al's wife got pregnant, and obviously on what we were earning from the band at that time, it wouldn't cover you know keeping a family because she had a job, and she was she in those days there was no sort of maternity leave or any, or any of this any of that stuff, so he had to leave and go and get a job, you know, and at the time I was um, I was dating Rob's sister Sue, who I uh, subsequently married, and had our first son Alex. Uh, and Sue said, um, why don't you try my brother, you know? And I, I wasn't at that point aware that my brother was a musician at all. Um, <laughs> it's funny because we'd heard of the band Hiroshima, you know, she, they were on posters uh, you know, the, in the same way we were. And, um, yeah, we, we, we went to his, his mom's, uh, Sue's mom's house, and he was still living with his mom and dad, and had a meeting with him and... Uh, as soon as we heard him open his pipes, you know, we thought, you know, we've got the, we've got our man, <laughs> and uh, we obviously changed the set a little bit, and not a great deal. And he, because our, our drummer Chris Campbell, he left at the same time as, as Alan. There was some time there, you know, and he sort of he wandered off and did other things. And um, uh, Rob brought along uh, his drummer that was drumming with him in Hiroshima, um, John Hinch. Uh, he was the drummer on our first album. And, and, we, and went from there, you know, carried on. A, a manager started working for a record company called Gold Records in London and, um, and got, us a, got us a deal through that, you know. And then, as I said, the rest is history. The rest Very is history. history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You, you meant, well, and you mentioned Rock and Roller because you said you're going to play a song off of that at, at National Harbor on the 31st. Um, but take me into those early albums. I know um let's see so after rock and roll you did sad wings of destiny sin after sin stained glass uh killing machine they were all pretty successful on on the british charts uh before before you know it was your, your sixth one british steel in in 1980 that went massive you know around the world including here in the states but um before we get to Br british steel tell me about the those early first five albums like how do you guys think your your sound evolved uh from rock and roll all the way through killing machine there well, yeah, I mean, in the early days, I mean, heavy metal didn't exist. We, we were what they say is heavy rock. Um, you know, that was the first two albums. Uh, and Gold Records, bless them. I, I mean, I think they were expecting us to make the record company rather than the way around. <laughs> uh, it became apparent that they hadn't got the, the, the financial clout really to, to put any any sort of, um, oh, you, you know, any any sort of promotion into the band at all. Like they certainly couldn't afford to send us to America, for instance, and things like that. 
And um, it's one of the new management company. And they had a contact at CBS, as it was then. Uh, Robin Blanchflower, the guy's name, uh, came to see us and I'd liked what he saw and uh, persuaded Maurice Oberstein, who was, who was boss of CBS in, in London at the time, to take us on. And um, suddenly, you, you know, we, we got a bit of, um, we've got a decent advance to make a decent album. I mean, the first two albums, the first one was done at night because, the, the, you know, the studio time was cheaper. Right. We slept in the van outside during the day and uh, cleaned ourselves up in the, in, the, in, the, in the bathrooms in the studios. <laughs> and, uh, and and recorded throughout the night. You know, we had to be out. I think it was eight o'clock in the morning. Back to the van, uh, and that's how the first one. The second one wasn't much different. Um, but we did it. Uh, oh, it was in Morgan Studios and at Rockfield in, in in Wales, which is a constituent part of the UK. Um, but when, of course, uh, CBS signs, you know, there, there's a bit more cash there. They gave us a better advance. So we could re- record during the day and afford to stay in a well a, a modest hotel, and um, and of course they could afford to send us to America as well. Um, and there was a sort of an apprenticeship you went through back in those days. The first time you went to America, you were sort of first on the bill. Doesn't matter how many bands were on the bill, you were number one. Uh, the second time, you know, you might have moved up and matched a special guest. And the third time you were playing your own smaller gigs, you know, and, and a special guest and large ones, which incidentally was Kiss in 79. And then, you, you know, this is assuming that you're talented and people like what you do, you know, and, and then you're on your own after that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were doing headline tours with, um, well, it would have been maybe Killing Machine, part of Killing Machine anyway. The tour, uh, and then the next one was British Steel, and that's when we were, you know, we were on our way there. Everything gelled with British Steel. Um, it was called heavy metal then. That's when he sort of everything, not just the music, but the image as well, and the attitude, and all the rest of it that went with it. You know, uh, it, it all sort of came together with British Steel, and um, it was a very, you know, it was the the, the basis for what came afterwards, basically. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Yeah, I mean, that's the British Steel was in 80. It was it's like you're saying, it's sort of like all the stars aligning then of not only the heavy metal sound coming into popularity, the image, the the music itself, everything was coming um, into alignment on that one. And um, the big le- tell me about the big lead off single on that one. Breaking the law, breaking the law. <laughs> tell me any cool stories from the record of the writing or the recording of that. 
Uh, no, not really. It's, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it was written as usual by Ken and Glenn. This is the music and the, the, the lyrics are written by Rob. And um, it, it's just about a the, the sign of the times, basically. Guy couldn't get a couldn't get a job um, down and out, got no money. And he, his only way out was, was, was to go and, you know, go rob banks. Those <laughs> 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 that, that, that are the lyrics and people picked up on that. And of course, it was the single. It was, it was a comparatively commercial song, radio friendly, they call it these days. Um, and it was picked up on, you know, in, in Britain anyway. And um, yeah, we did a video with it as well with uh, Julian Tem Temple at the, at the helm. Um, which is a classic in itself. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but <laughs> he was going up with a good storyline to Julian. Uh, and, and yeah, it, like I say, it was um, it, it was picked up on by Pot, and he did a did a lot to um, to further the cause of the band, if you know what I mean. He got us on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, the the same album, British Steel, also had. Living after midnight, man. We yeah. we we all know these. We love these songs. Um, rocking to the dawn. Um, what? Why do you think that one works so well? I mean, you meant. I mean, you mentioned you used to tour with Kiss, and it's sort of that same idea of rock and roll all night party every day. It's just you. It's living after midnight, rocking to the dawn. I mean, do you, why? Why do you think that message? Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I guess it just speaks to rock and roll fans. They want to party. Yeah, it on. does. It well, speaks to everybody. You know, you, you get out of work on a Friday night. You know, you're not going to go home and put your slippers on and watch TV, are you? You know, you're going to be down the bar <laughs> having fun. Um, and that's basically what the song's about. Um, it came about, actually, Ken and Glenn, were, we, we, were, we were doing this at, at Ringo Starr's old house in, in Ascot. He got a studio there and we were recording it there. And it's a big Georgian mansion. And we, we were sort of staying there as well. You know, we were sleeping there in the rooms upstairs. And Ken and Glenn, they were going on till one, two o'clock in the morning. And Rob went down and complained. He said, what is this living after midnight? And then he must have twigged. Well, wait a minute, that's pretty good. And went upstairs and started writing the lyrics to it. Uh, next thing you know, you, you, you've got a hit song. Wait, you said you were at Ringo Starr's mansion? Yeah. That's where you recorded Living After Midnight? Tittenhurst Park, yeah. It was called Startling Studios at the time. It used to belong to John Lennon. Um, and he flogged it to Ringo for some reason. Uh, and Ringo, he went off to live in, in Switzerland, I think, and he, he just wasn't using the house. And somebody suggested, well, why don't you rent it out as a studio? And you've got a state-of-the-art studio there. But at least it was when it was put in there. It, obviously, it, it, um, it, it, things go obsolete pretty quickly in the, in, the, in the recording world. But at the time, it was, it was a damn good studio, you know. And, of course, the house, it was a Georgian mansion. It was something like 12 bedrooms, something like that. So... You arrive and go pick your bedroom. <laughs> and, wow. all, uh, and there was there's a housekeeper there that would cook your meals for you. <laughs> you know, so we were um, we, we were well looked after. Wow, was, yeah, maybe, it's, maybe. A great, it's, a, it's a great atmosphere as well. You know, I mean, recording in you know where Lennon and Ringo used to live. Uh, I think somebody went into a cupboard under the stairs by mistake one day, opened this door, and there's a pile of gold albums in there. I mean, dozens of them. Oh my god! You know, from all over the place, and of course, you haven't got a wall big enough to put them on. You know, <laughs> they were under the stairs. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, you know, maybe a little of that Beatles magic just oozed off of the walls and onto your. Yeah, your, yeah, your... yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. I I didn't never I never knew that. That's great. Well, um, in, in fact, when when John Lennon was was killed, yeah, he he, he was killed that year, right? In 1980, yeah, yeah, same year. But can you remember the the, the um? 
the song Imagine and the video they did. Of course. The, the video was, was John sitting at a, at a grand piano in a, in, a, in a house and Yoko was walking around opening these curtains. Um, that's the house? That's the house. We were sitting in that room when the news came through. Oh, and, my God. Seriously, you were in the room of the Imagine video, you know, with all the fog and all that, that, that you were in it. that room. That's it. And the, the, they played the video. And we thought, shit, this is the room. <laughs> and there wasn't one of us that didn't look around, you know, expecting to see Oko opening the curtains, you know. It was a spooky, spooky time. Oh. But, uh, like you say, maybe maybe some of the aura rubbed off on us. Absolutely. Well, rest in peace to the genius John Lennon. And, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's one of those... It's one of those where everyone remembers where they were when they found out he was assassinated and you have you literally have the best where you were story of that. You were in the room of Imagine. That is incredible. Thanks for that's a gold story. Thanks so much. That's amazing. Um, On tragic circumstances, of course. Um, Well, maybe time for one more. Um, Tell me about you got another thing coming in 82. I give us a couple albums later, but I always love that song. That one, uh, another one you just want to turn on and and blare out the window. But um, uh, take me into the writing or the recording of that one real quick before we run. Well, well, it's funny. We we were actually in in Florida at the time, uh, finishing up an album. And we'd finished the album. And we we were just a few minutes short. And that was thrown together. It was thrown together in, in, in a few hours and it was it was down in, in a day. And uh, it, it was just one of those songs that just, it was just magical really, the way it just all went together. Um, and this is the one that, that really broke us in the States because um, uh, AM radio, it was called AM radio in those days. These days you'd call it, I don't know, mainstream radio so probably these days. Um, and they, they played the hell out of it, and people were going to work, and they were listening to it on the radio, you know. <laughs> and I just remember the tour that we had planned was slowly one of all one. The gigs were being sort of cancelled, those gigs that were moving us to, to larger places, and it made all that difference. Just one song, you know, that the radio picked up on. And um, like I say, we, 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 were, we went from playing to three, 4,000 people to playing to, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, just from that one song. Wow, that's and, incredible! And to this day, it's, it's a fixture in the uh, in the stage set, you know, in, in, in the in the set list. Oh, you'll hear that everywhere. You'll hear it in movies. You'll hear it in video games. You hear it in commercials. It's, <laughs> it's everywhere. Um, well, wow, yeah, and it always it always fascinates me that you know there, you'd had all the early 70s stuff we talked about um, you know famous in in you know the british stuff and then the 80s stuff was you had all the mainstream global even in america all, all those hits but it always fascinates me that you didn't even get grammy nods until the 90s like you had to wait past the into a third decade for painkiller and bullet train and then i guess you got nominated for visions and nostradamus and you finally won for dissident aggressor in 2010 but um was it was it bizarre to you that it took so long or do you not really even care about the awards kind of stuff <laughs> uh, I, I don't know i mean it's i think very few metal bands were getting grammys anyway you know oh you true go, true but we could go more to mainstream artists you know um of course when these things come along it's very flattering you know to think that you've been recognized by your peers um, but it never registered until um, we, we were actually nominated. Oh, Grammy! Oh, that would be nice, you know. <laughs> and uh, just to be nominated is is a great honour. But, but to actually win one, I mean that one that came out of the blue. We, we were hoping to get one for um, oh, Painkiller. Was the first um, one? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we were able to win it with with Angela Retribution and. 
that, that wasn't even mentioned, but we won one from a song we'd recorded why all those years ago on the on the, on Sin After Sin, you know, um, as a as a live as a live performance for which we are eternally grateful. You know, it's, it's on my it's on my uh, windowsill in a, in a in a little case. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I actually, now that I've looked into it a little more, I think I answered my own question because I don't think they even started giving out the category for hard rock or metal performance until like '89. So that that would explain it. You guys, you guys yeah. were ahead of the time. <laughs> do, do you know? Do you know who won the first one? Um, I I could I could act like I know the trivia, but it's just it's. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you tell me? <laughs> Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how much knowledge they got about heavy metal. I mean, I love Jethro Tull. I think they're a brilliant band, but heavy metal they ain't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a different genre. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's very different, very different. All right, well, very, very cool. Well, you've been generous with your time. I know you got to run, but before we go, um, speaking of accolades and stuff, I know Judas Priest is nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. You're you're on that short list of bands. Um, we find out in May, I think, if you're actually in the class. But um, do you think this is the year? I think it could be. Yeah. Um, I don't. It's just another one of those things. You know, it's something that we haven't really thought. It'd be nice, like I say. When 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 you when you're recognised by your peers, it's it's always an honour. Um, but but it's it's not something that you lose sleep over necessarily. If it doesn't happen, uh, it'd be great if it happened. But uh, the the people you really need to keep happy are your fans, uh, without whom you know none of us would be here anyway. Um, but it is it's always nice when when you're recognised you know by by music people. Absolutely. Well, those music people are the audience that are going to be at the MGM National Harbor here in the D.C. area. Uh, Judas Priest is coming out on March 31st. So get your tickets now. Anything, uh, Ian Hill, anything you want to just speak directly to the listeners and tell them, you know, hey, hey, guys, come on out. It's going to be a rock and show, that kind of thing. Speak, speak directly to them and tell them why they should come on out. Yeah, come on out. The, the, the show is bigger and better than it's always been. Um, we love playing in D.C. We always have done. Um, so coming out, you won't be disappointed. It's a great show. All right. Ian Hill, founding bass player of Judas Priest. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And on a personal note, thanks for all those bass lines over the years. You know, you, your music has, has uh, rocked so many of us. And so thank you for thank you for the music. I just got to say that. Thanks so much. Oh, well, that has been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And uh, to bring it full circle to the front, um, to the beginning, I'm sure, you, like we were saying, I'm sure your, your dad would be very proud of, of how, how, how you've made it. So, so oh, congrats. I'm sure. He's, he's looking down on his with a big smile on his face. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, congrats. All right. Well, I, we really appreciate you joining us. Okay. Thanks, Jason. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll see you at the, at the MGM. Talk to you soon. Tell you will. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.